Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and Halloween is my favorite time of year. That's right, I'm not thinking of it as a day, but an entire season that starts when the candy corn hits the shelves and ends sometime around Thanksgiving. If the leaves are changing color, it's Halloween season. As you might recall, last year we had a whole series of creepy history episodes for Halloween season, and although we're doing things a little differently this year, I didn't want to let you down. That's why today I'm going to tell you all about some of the scariest history I've ever found. Let's talk about gaslighting. Gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation where the abuser tries to confuse the victim or make them doubt their own mind and memories, essentially making them wonder if they're losing their mind. Chances are, you've dated somebody like this. <laughs> you know, that never happened. You're crazy. You ever notice how many women are supposedly crazy? To hear some guys tell it, Ten of their ex-girlfriends were all coincidentally crazy, a fact that only emerges after several weeks or months of dating. Never mind that the common denominator is the guy at the center of it. I don't know, Tad. This sounds like a you problem. But it's not just personal relationships. Women are unfit to govern, some people say, because PMS makes them irrational. They're too emotional to make important decisions. They don't act in their own best interest, and they can't be trusted to report their own rapes. And God knows they are terrible drivers. Even now, in 2022, women are perceived as unreliable narrators in need of protection, guidance, and censure based on the simple fact that they're women. This isn't a new thing. Far from it. It's the oldest trick in the book. You probably already know that the idea of hysteria goes all the way back to the ancient world when problems with women's mental and physical health were thought to be caused by the uterus. People genuinely believed that the uterus could wander throughout the body and cause problems unless it was weighed down through constant pregnancies. Convenient, that. This was used as a reason to impregnate girls as young as possible, for their own good, obviously, to keep them pregnant, and to dismiss older women who were no longer of childbearing age, assuming they lived that long anyway. Now, I want to stop here for a second and reassure you that just because that was the theory doesn't mean that that was the reality for most women, but it is what a lot of people thought. And it wasn't just the ancient world. The idea of murderous uteruses causing mental illness was probably one of the most persistent ones throughout history, uniting time periods and cultures in a hopeless misogyny that caused the neglect or death of countless women suffering from health issues, both real and imagined. It was so persistent that it lasted well into the 20th century. If you can believe it, hysteria was used as a diagnosis until 1980. Still, as long as the idea has been around, the 19th century really stands out when it comes to the mistreatment of women suspected of being mentally ill. 
There are a few reasons for this. The Enlightenment led to certain advances in medicine and psychiatry, albeit slowly, but the great minds of the Enlightenment weren't the only ones thinking. From Mary Wollstonecraft to the Seneca Falls Convention and beyond, women were fighting for their rights in a world that increasingly wanted to keep them in the nursery. But with every great leap forward, there is an inevitable backlash from people who want to take things backward, and that is exactly what happened. Now, this might surprise you, but women are not inherently homemakers. I know this sounds weird because since we were kids, we've been told that until about 1960, all women throughout all cultures and all periods of history used to stay home, raise kids, and cook. It's all they did. It's science. But it's not true. It wasn't even true at the beginning of the 19th century. Up until then, women were frequently employed doing what we would see as men's work. Hunting, fishing, mining, building roads, doing heavy manual labor. It was normal. They had jobs, birth control existed, and unless they were employed as cooks, well, they probably weren't chained to the stove either. Most homes didn't have ovens, and it was typical to get your food from street vendors, bakeries, or pubs. So the next time you get takeout, don't feel too bad about it. Your great-great-great-grandmother did it too, and she'd probably love tacos. Anyway, between the Industrial Revolution changing the world faster than anyone was comfortable with and women starting to organize and speak up, the powers that be got nervous. They saw it as a society spinning out of control. Without churches and governments enforcing the social order, who knows what could happen? It probably won't surprise you that most of this came down to racism and misogyny. Because of course it did. You'll notice that around this time, things started to change for women. Abortion was criminalized, and white women were encouraged to have as many children as possible. We've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes. Women couldn't work the same jobs that they used to. A woman's place, they were told, was in the home. They were supposed to be wives and mothers, or maybe housemaids if they had to work. But their purpose in life wasn't dependent on their wants or abilities. It all came down to biology. It's only rational, right? You have a uterus, so you should weigh it down with babies. Kind of like how misogynists have beating hearts that should be under my floorboards, driving me slowly mad. But you're not ready for that discussion, are you? Anyway, women weren't buying it. Sure, some did. Some women jumped on the tradwife bandwagon and they were fine with it. Others were forced. Forced by society not just to marry and give birth, but to be the Victorian ideal of submissive womanhood. Dutiful, unemotional, and above all, quiet. In a lot of cases, it worked. Why? Well, to be honest with you, women were terrified. Not only could a spouse beat you or rape you with no repercussions, but society had ways of dealing with disobedient women. This is where it comes back to gaslighting. If a woman refused to play the role society had given her, it couldn't be rational. Why would she refuse? Why wouldn't a woman want to live in subservience to a man who can abuse her with impunity, forbidden opinions, books, exercise, or even friends? If she spoke up, what could she be if not crazy? Women labeled insane, that is, those who would not obey, were removed. They were seen as unfit to have children, for fear that they'd pass on their genes, that's eugenics popping up again, and they were unfit to even be around people, not because they'd hurt them, but because their very presence would affect the social order. But the neglect, torture, and incarceration that followed wasn't just abuse. Oh no. 
It was all for their own good. That's what we're talking about today. In this episode, we're looking at women's mental health institutions, the ways so-called mental illness was treated, and a couple of badass ladies who fought back. But a quick note before we start. This episode is not covering actual mental illness, and it is not my intention to comment on that or make light of it in any way. Mental illness is something that a lot of us deal with, and this is not that. The 19th century understanding of mental illness was very different from how we see it today, and I'll be talking about that in the language that they used. Some of this may be upsetting for people, so if you need to skip it, that's absolutely fine. You take care of yourself first, and we'll catch you next time instead. But for those of you sticking with us, let's get started. There were a lot of reasons a woman could be admitted to a mental asylum in the 19th century. You've probably seen that meme going around, and it might surprise you that being admitted for wearing pants and reading novels isn't a joke. In 1864, the Illinois State Hospital at Jacksonville listed novel reading as a reason for admittance, along with domestic trouble, disappointed love, vicious indulgences, mm, spiritualism, hard study, physical injury, change of life, fear, epilepsy, and even sunstroke. But I cannot emphasize enough that the very state of being female was enough to get you admitted. Women were admitted for PMS, not wanting sex, and wanting too much sex with nymphomania. They were admitted after giving birth for what was probably postnatal depression, or even just struggling as a new mother. Women were frequently admitted for overwork and exhaustion, like raising eight kids and doing all the cooking and housework before instant coffee and electric appliances wouldn't lay you the fuck out. But if they didn't do enough housework, they could be admitted for not taking care of themselves and neglecting their families. And when it got too much or resources were too tight, like for Mendota Mental Asylum patient 1433, a mother of five in her 30s, you could be admitted for abortion too. Another reason for admission to asylums was the deeply suspect and frankly illogical suppression of menses, meaning somebody's period has stopped. You don't have to ace health class to know that there are many reasons that this could happen. They could be malnourished or underweight. They could have a hormonal imbalance or, I don't know, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. They could be going through fucking menopause? It's not like menopause was unknown to the 19th century. They knew what it was and yet, and yet, multiple women were admitted to the Mendota Mental Asylum in Wisconsin for suppressed menses, including patient number 1364, who was diagnosed with insanity by the suppression of menses at age 46. So if you find yourself female in the 19th century, it's not a question of if you're insane, but how. And if you're not yet, well, it's only a matter of time. Beyond issues of body autonomy, there were other situations that were clearly not applied equally across the board. Being too religious was one of them. You could get locked up for talking too much about God, having religious fantasies, or having the gall to interpret the Bible for yourself rather than accepting your husband or pastor's reading of it. Likewise, mourning. In a time when people were surrounded by death and mourning itself was a fashion statement across the pond, mourning or even feeling sad too long after the death of a loved one could get you diagnosed as insane. Keep in mind that at the same time, Queen Victoria was in perpetual mourning for her dear departed Albert, but no one blinked an eye at that. And families and guardians could commit women without any good reason at all. As historian Kate Moore writes, 
Most states then had no limits on relatives' right of disposal to commit their loved ones. As one commentator wrote of the lack of legal protection for patients, the insane were confined for their own good. It followed that there could be no motive for misdiagnosis, mistreatment, or unjust detention. There was no need to protect them from their protectors. The idea that a protector could be cruel, deluded, or compromised was unthinkable. Of course men, any men, knew what was best for women. Right? The vast majority of women admitted to asylums were committed by their husbands, who, in most cases, did not do it out of some deep concern for their wives, but as a harsh lesson in obedience. And it was easy. Married women could be committed solely based on the request of their husbands. This happened to far too many women. How many, we'll never really know. But the best, or at least the best documented example of this, is Elizabeth Packard. Elizabeth Ware was 19 the first time she was admitted to an asylum. The reason? Mental labor. She wasn't even 20, but she was so accomplished that she was already the principal of the Randolph College in Massachusetts. At the time, people thought that women using their brains were as dangerous, and one visitor to an all-female school in 1858 commented that its teachers were, quote, training girls for the lunatic asylum. If you were a woman, too much reading could make you insane. The danger being, of course, that you might form opinions of your own, and we couldn't have that now, could we? So, when Elizabeth came down with a fever, an actual serious fever, her father jumped at the chance to have her committed, not for illness, but mental labor, and the fact that her periods were sometimes irregular was only further proof of her illness. Elizabeth knew exactly what he was doing, and she later wrote that his actions were needless and unkind. In the asylum, she was bled excessively until she recovered from the fever. Unlike many patients who could expect to stay for months or years, Elizabeth was released into the care of her father after only six weeks. But the damage had been done. She never returned to her position at the school. Her father insisted she marry a man of his choosing, and, presumably not wanting to be committed again, Elizabeth agreed. Theophilus Packard was a preacher, tall and gangly with an enormous cloud of curly red hair. He was 14 years older than Elizabeth and exceptionally cold and domineering. As far as arranged marriages go, he'd be enough to make Iphigenia choose the dagger. Still, Elizabeth tried to make the best of a bad situation. Over the years, they had six children, and she loved them dearly. She was an accomplished cook and housekeeper, a regular 19th century Martha Stewart, and she was a well-respected pillar of the community. None of that mattered when Theophilus had her committed. To his mind, it had been a long time coming. In 1848, the two of them actually attended the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York. Elizabeth loved it. She'd always read widely, and she took to their ideas immediately. She argued, "'Wives are not mere things. They are part of society. I, though a woman, have just as good a right to my opinion as my husband does to his.'" As for Theophilus, he said, "'A woman has no rights that a man is bound to respect.'" Real prize, that one. Still, Elizabeth was not afraid of sharing her thoughts. She was brilliant and an excellent communicator, and her husband hated that. She was smarter than he was, and a better public speaker, too. Instead of being proud of his wife, Theophilus was jealous. He was afraid that Elizabeth would outshine him, and he couldn't stand it. 
The fact that she taught a popular Bible class in his church didn't help. Elizabeth was better liked than he was. Before long, he was questioning her sanity in his letters. But the final straw was something Elizabeth herself would not become aware of until years later. Theophilus was compromised. In 1860, the Civil War hadn't started yet, but it was coming. Things were tense. That year, Theophilus's church switched from the new school to the old school doctrines. What's the important difference? Well, the old school doctrine supported slavery. This was curious because Theophilus had never supported slavery. Elizabeth sure as hell didn't, and she thought that they at least agreed on that subject. But in swept this piece of shit Cyrus H. McCormick. It's okay, I can say that, it's my podcast. And this guy was one of America's richest and most powerful men. Now, McCormick spent his money influencing politics in a particularly insidious way. Even in 1860, he knew which way the wind was blowing. There were no political attack ads on YouTube yet, but there were churches, and there were spineless little fucks like Theophilus Packard. So McCormick, air quotes, donated $800, or about $25,000 in today's money, to Theophilus's church on the condition that they swap doctrines and preach their support of slavery. By that time, the Packards were in Illinois, which became a very important state in the Civil War, providing loads of Union soldiers and essential supplies. McCormick didn't want war, but he thought the Confederates were unbeatable, so the best way to avoid fighting would be for the Union to just roll over and stop all this nasty talk about abolition. It wasn't a popular opinion, but he did what he could to influence it. He was rich as hell, and he used that money to bribe churches to switch their stance, firing pro-abolition clergy when necessary, and replacing them with those in favor of slavery. This was no great secret. He was subsidizing the preaching of pro-slavery principles in the free Northwest, and everybody knew it. Except Elizabeth. Although Theophilus took the money and set aside his personal beliefs to toe the line, Elizabeth thought it was bullshit and she said so. She continued to speak out against slavery, and that was when Theophilus decided to get rid of her. So, after six children and 21 years of marriage, Theophilus had Elizabeth committed, as she herself put it, for thinking. She was smarter than he was, and he couldn't stand it. Now, whether she knew it or not, she was also threatening his job. Elizabeth knew it was coming, and she fought, but it didn't matter. He was within his legal rights to have her committed without trial. He told her outright that she could come home if she promised to be obedient and keep her mouth shut, but she refused. As badly as she wanted to go home, she would never submit. She wrote, A peace based on injustice is a treacherous sleep whose waking is death. Your honor lies in waking out of it. In the asylum, Elizabeth soon found that she was not the only woman held there without good reason. She soon befriended Sarah Menard, who had been committed for her interest in spiritualism, which was hugely trendy at the time and championed by Elizabeth Cady Stanton as the only religious sect in the world that has recognized the equality of women. Even more ridiculous was the case of Maria Chapman, who'd been committed by her friends due to a harmless disagreement over philosophy. But the asylum wasn't a hospital. As Elizabeth wrote, it was a storage unit for unsatisfactory wives. They were put here, like me, to get rid of them. What's more, the doctors knew it. 
Elizabeth's doctor himself said that mental asylums had a subsidiary use as a social necessity, that being for the treatment of so-called moral insanity. Women who were smart, talkative, assertive, or ambitious could be locked up for being unladylike. The goal wasn't always to keep them there forever, but to scare them into conforming to the role society had set for them. These ladies had been locked up for their failure to conform, but at least they could sew. The women in Elizabeth's ward were forced to sew for most of the day, making all of the bedding, furnishings, and clothing for the entire asylum, thousands of pieces saving the facility the equivalent of $31,000 per year. And worse, if you can believe it, the women even had to sew their own straitjackets. Just sit with that for a minute. Still, it wasn't all bad. Elizabeth later wrote that any privations she had suffered during her stay, quote, did not begin to equal what I endured in one day's time at home from my husband. But as bad as it had been, it got worse. After three years in the asylum, Elizabeth was finally discharged as incurable. Theophilus welcomed her back home by shutting her in the nursery and nailing the windows shut. Still, Elizabeth managed to get a letter to her friend, Sarah Hazlitt, who took it to a local judge. Unsatisfied with Theophilus's evidence that Elizabeth was insane, the judge called for a jury trial to determine Elizabeth's sanity once and for all. After five days of testimony, it took the jury only seven minutes to reach an agreement. Elizabeth was declared legally sane, and the judge issued an order that she could not be confined again. But by the time Elizabeth returned home following the trial, Theophilus was gone. He had sold the furniture, rented the house to another family, and taken their children, her money, and everything she owned to another state. Although she was legally sane now, there was nothing Elizabeth could do about any of it. But Elizabeth hadn't survived the asylum to be beaten by a little bitch like Theophilus Packard. Elizabeth founded the Anti-Insane Asylum Society, try saying that five times fast, writing books and campaigning for married women's rights. As a result of her work, the state of Illinois passed the Bill for Protection of Personal Liberty in 1867, guaranteeing all people accused of insanity, including married women, the right to a public hearing. Three other states soon followed suit, but it wasn't enough. Elizabeth then petitioned Illinois and Massachusetts until they passed legislation granting married women equal rights to property and the custody of their children. Knowing he'd been beat, Theophilus finally caved. Nine years after she'd been admitted to the asylum, Elizabeth was finally reunited with her children. Elizabeth and Theophilus remained separated until her death at age 81, and if that's not a happy ending, I don't know what is. But as bad as it was, Elizabeth's asylum stay was actually better than most women's experience. We're going to talk about Nellie Bly in a moment, but first, let's look at some common treatments. Clearly, asylums weren't the safe place people wanted them to be, but imprisonment wasn't the only way insanity was treated. I'm going to go ahead and give you a content warning here. I'm about to go into detail about some pretty awful practices that would upset anybody. So if you want to skip ahead, give me about five minutes, okay? Okay. Psychiatric medication did exist, but needless to say, it wasn't FDA approved. 
Patients could be given opium or chloroform to keep them quiet. Medications containing mercury or derived from poisonous hemlock, and <laughs> talk about side effects, or the intriguingly named tincture of veratria, which was a delightful sounding mix of port, quinine, arsenic, and cannabis. But the idea that women's mental illness originated in the sex organs meant that the sex organs were typically the first thing treated. And I say treated with the world's biggest air quotes there. We're not talking about anything as fun as vibrators. The jury's still out on whether those were actually used medically to produce orgasm. But we do know that making sure the women had a good time was the last thing on anybody's mind. Instead, genitals were typically injected with ice water, burned with caustic chemicals, or even covered in leeches. Ugh. But it could have been worse. It could always be worse. Dr. Isaac Baker Brown, the chief obstetrician at St. Mary's Hospital in London, championed a procedure that had already been used in America for years. The easiest way to cure insanity, he argued, was to remove the clitoris. Because the women in question wouldn't listen to reason, he assumed the cause of their insanity was physical, and as such, he should really just snip it off. Literally, Dr. Brown liked to use scissors. The clitoridectomy was, as historian Eleanor Cleghorn rightly described it, one of the most shocking cures enforced on women in the history of medicine. Yes, this is female genital mutilation, and in Britain and the United States, it was more common than you might think. As the patients generally went into shock during the procedure, Dr. Brown saw that as proof of its success. They were so quiet afterwards. It must be working. In my professional opinion, this guy was a fucking monster. During his time at the hospital, he performed countless ovariotomies, that is, the surgical removal of the ovaries when there was no medical reason to do so. Between 1852 and 1854, multiple women died on his table, sometimes bleeding to death. Others died of complications in the days following surgery. But the clitoridectomy was his real claim to fame. Leaving St. Mary's Hospital, presumably soaked in blood, he set up his own practice in Notting Hill, the London Surgical Home for the Reception of Gentlewomen and Females of Respectability Suffering from Curable Surgical Diseases. Imagine the size of the sign out front. Anyway, women were brought to Dr. Brown for all kinds of conditions related to hysteria, many of which would be recognized as common anxiety today. So anxiety, pelvic pain, lack of sexual interest, or too much sexual interest, Dr. Brown blamed it all on the clitoris. If you touched it, he said it could induce paralysis, seizures, mental illness, blindness, mania, and even death. <laughs> Tell me you've never satisfied a woman without telling me you've never satisfied a woman. <laughs> anyway, since the clitoris was, to Dr. Brown, quite literally the devil's doorbell, the problems would obviously stop if it was removed. But the removal was anything but simple. Typically, a patient was knocked out with chloroform, then her clitoris was removed with scissors. For the next month, she would recover in his facility in perfect silence. Visitors were forbidden, as were activities and anything but the blandest of food. It would be hell, even if you'd agreed to it but not everyone did. Dr. Brown was ultimately expelled from the Obstetrical Society of London for performing this procedure without consent. But 
that doesn't mean that clitoridectomy stopped. Doctors in both countries continued to remove clitorises and even ovaries for emotional distress well into the 20th century, with the last known case happening in the 1940s. Twenty years after Elizabeth Packard saw the Bill for Protection of Personal Liberty passed, investigative journalist Nellie Bly wrote an expose on mental asylums that made waves around the world. Faking insanity, she got herself committed to the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island in New York City in 1887. She was there on assignment from the New York World, published at that time by Joseph Pulitzer. Yes, as in the Pulitzer Prize. Unfortunately, Nellie was a few years too early to win a Pulitzer Prize for her work, but God only knows she earned one. During her short stay at the asylum, she documented horrors unimaginable to the outside world. Before entering the asylum, Nellie assumed asylums were necessary for the treatment of genuine mental illness, and she had never imagined that the people living there would be treated with anything less than excellent care. But before long, it became apparent that the diagnosis of insanity was essentially meaningless. She wrote, From the moment I entered the insane ward on the island, I made no attempt to keep up the assumed role of insanity. I talked and acted just like I do in ordinary life. Yet, strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be. In Bellevue Hospital, waiting to be admitted to the asylum, she met Anne Neville, who had been employed as a chambermaid. Working long hours for years, her health had eventually given out. Unable to care for her, her nephew had her committed. Anne was perfectly sane. She was just exhausted. She tried to explain this to the doctors and staff, but they ignored her. There was nothing wrong with Anne's mind. There was nothing wrong with Nellie's, either. After her admission, she tried to tell people this, but, like Anne, well, she was ignored as well. Another woman, Miss Tilly Maynard, was admitted by her friends after suffering a long illness. She may have also had a post-viral illness, like chronic fatigue, but whatever the case may be, she was perfectly sane. She just wasn't physically well yet. When Tilly demanded the doctor test her sanity, he laughed and refused, telling her she was unlikely to ever leave. Exhausted, unwell, and unable to eat properly, Tilly did eventually suffer mentally in the asylum. It was a common story. Conditions were so bad, they would stress sane people to the point of mental exhaustion, convincing the doctors they were right to keep them locked up. Inside Bellevue, it was freezing, and the patients were dressed in shabby clothes full of moths. They were given only thin gruel or broth and a metallic substance they called tea, which Nellie said was undeserving of the name. When she refused to eat what was given, she was given a cup of milk and a single cracker. These women were starving. In their tiny rooms, it was too cold and too noisy to sleep, and their pillows were stuffed with straw. They were kept up all night by nurses talking as they paced outside their doors. The patients were cold, starving, and sleep-deprived. It would be enough to make anybody act out. Nellie was understandably disgusted with the whole situation. She wrote, I began to have a smaller regard for the ability of doctors than I ever had before, and a greater one for myself. I felt sure now that no doctor could tell whether people were insane or not. Worse, the doctors and hospital staff were subjecting the women to conditions severely detrimental to their mental health. If they wanted to cure them of insanity, starvation, 
constant discomfort, and gaslighting wasn't the way to do it. But as bad as Bellevue was, the asylum was worse. The food was rotten and full of spiders. Patients were beaten for speaking. For hours on end, they were forced to sit still in silence. Nellie wrote, I was never so tired as I grew sitting on those benches. Several of the patients would sit on one foot or sideways to make a change, but they were always reproved and told to sit up straight. If they talked, they were scolded and told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What, excepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches, do not allow her to talk or move during those hours, give her no reading, and let her know nothing of the outside world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. To Nellie, it was worse than prison. She pointed out that women were, quote, taken without their consent from the free world to an asylum and there given no chance to prove their sanity, confined most probably for life behind asylum bars without even being told why and wherefore. Compare this with a criminal who is given every chance to prove his innocence. Fortunately for Nellie, the New York world pulled her out of the asylum after only 10 days. The articles she wrote about her experience were published as 10 Days in a Madhouse, catapulting her to instant stardom. In the years that followed, Nellie would do similar investigations of the Keeley Institute, which we've covered on our blog, as well as a trip around the world in 72 days, beating Phileas Fogg's 80 by a week, and even meeting up with Jules Verne in Paris. Although Nellie had a fantastic career as a reporter, writing important articles on societal issues and injustices in New York City and beyond, she's still remembered today for 10 days in a madhouse. This report was so effective and far-reaching that it led to an increase in funding to improve the conditions in these institutions to the tune of an extra million dollars per year. But that wasn't the end of punishing women for being insufficiently feminine. As historian Hugh Ryan mentioned in his book, The Women's House of Detention, it was just the beginning. From the early 20th century, women were incarcerated for their perceived ability to spread sexually transmitted infections through the American plan, and as part of that, subjected to non-consensual medical experiments. Over time, fewer women were admitted to mental institutions and more were taken directly to prison for outrageous crimes like smoking and wearing pants. You can listen to our whole conversation with Hugh Ryan in Season 2, Episode 5, and I hope you do. It's a good one. Admissions to asylums didn't totally stop, however, and women's health and emotional issues have continued to be treated as mental health problems into the present day. Following the Second World War, women were once again forced out of work and back into the home, and again, this shift caused an explosion of mental health issues until the majority of American housewives were on sedatives just to cope. Even now, women's health issues are frequently dismissed as anxiety, and women's pain isn't taken as seriously because women, still, are seen as unreliable narrators. How could we possibly know what's going on with our own bodies? What right do we have to make our own medical decisions? 
As you might have noticed, if you follow the news, the progress we've made is currently being met with a backlash of epic proportions. Roe v. Wade was overturned this year, and Republicans are fighting to outlaw abortion across the country state by state. This is not just something decided at the federal level. Every state, every county, every district is important here, and this issue affects everybody. Whether you have a uterus or just know people who do, I'm begging you, guys, please go out and vote. This nightmare past isn't as far away as we'd like to believe, but we don't have to go back. Take it from Elizabeth Packard and Nellie Bly. Make your voice heard and don't give up without a fight. This week, I'd like to further acknowledge some of our sources. Elizabeth Packard's story comes from Kate Moore's fantastic book, The Woman They Could Not Silence. The connection to suffrage was made known to me by friend of the podcast, author Susan Finetti, who wrote about it for our blog a couple of years back. That article is still up if you're interested. Finally, I'd like to mention Eleanor Cleghorn's brilliant Unwell Women, which is the most meticulously researched and beautifully written book about the worst things you've ever read in your life. It is not for the squeamish, but it is well worth the read. Thank you as always as well to our beautiful patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, Sylvia Van Eyck, Jay Val, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you want more great stories while you're waiting for the next episode, we have six years of podcast archives at our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. You can browse through those while you're in line to vote. My sources today include Nellie Bly, 10 Days in a Madhouse, Michael Castleman, Hysteria and the Strange History of Vibrators, Psychology Today, Eleanor Cleghorn, Unwell Women, Susan Finetti, Voice, Votes, and Vibrators, Women's Suffrage in England and the United States, on Dirty Sexy History. Jonathan Metzel, Mother's Little Helper, The Crisis of Psychoanalysis and the Milltown Resolution, in Gender and History, Volume 15, Number 2. Kate Moore, The Woman They Could Not Silence, The Shocking Story of a Woman Who Dared to Fight Back. Catherine Puba and Ashley Tiannan, Lunacy in the 19th Century, Women's Admission to Asylums in the United States of America, in the Oshkosh Scholar, Volume 1, April 2006, and Hugh Ryan, The Women's House of Detention. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.